0: This is episode 133 of off script with trish close intimate interviews with interesting people joining me today via skype david page is in the house he is a former executive producer and creator of diners drive-ins and dives also a former news producer and recently the author of food americana hello david page
1: how you doing trish and thanks for having
0: me well thanks for being here you're joining us from where i know it's east coast
1: I am on the Jersey Shore. I live on an island called Long Beach Island,
0: Fantastic. which
1: is a tourist paradise. It's the first sandbar north of Atlantic City, and home of the finest scallops on earth. Oh, really? We have a we have an active fishing port at the top of the
0: island. Beautiful. So I'm in Oregon, close to the Oregon coast.
1: Uh, right.
0: Lots of good seafood. Halibut is my weakness. Really? Mm-hmm. Halibut. Halibut. I know it's like now a here, bottom feeder.
1: Well, no, it's a good fish. Here, the big thing in August is we actually get tuna.
0: Oh, nice. Okay.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. that's good
0: too. Uh, how long have you have How long have you lived in New Jersey?
1: Uh, well, we've had a house here for 26 years, 27 years but when my daughter went off to college about eight, nine years ago, we decided to make it our full-time residence. I love it. And it's lovely, especially in the winter when no one else is here, and the traffic lights are flashing, and the uh, the speed limit goes up, but uh, it's okay, we'll take the tourists.
0: Yeah, you know, it's not a bad thing when other people around the globe find the place that you live and call home a pretty cool place to visit. I, I take that as a compliment.
1: Oh, it's it's wonderful, I just wish they would eat what we produce here i go into a restaurant in the summer and i see people eating like frozen battered shrimp from indonesia and i just want to run over to them and say eat local we have scallops
0: (laughs) you should do it make a show out of that that would be right (laughs) that would be pretty funny okay take me back a little bit we're going to talk about diners drive in and dives we're going to talk about your your new book uh where are you from originally
1: I was born in Flushing, Queens where they now play the U.S. Open, but I actually grew up in western Massachusetts in a sort of rural area. My parents did not want to raise us in the New York area Mm -hmm. and then obviously I lived all over the country and in Europe and when I came back it was to New York.
0: Uh, Big family? Small family?
1: No. Just just my sister. Okay. Who uh, became a Broadway musician. I have no musical skill whatsoever.
0: Oh, wow. What kind of stuff has she yeah. done?
1: Uh, she was the assistant conductor of Les Mis. And, and that meant she would conduct the show several times a week and play first piano.
0: Wow. Look at her. Amazing. Yeah.
1: She got all the talent in the family.
0: <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Uh, Jewish family, correct?
1: Oh, extremely.
0: Real, that real Jewish? Mean
1: orthodox. We're, we're not, we don't keep kosher, but I identify quite strongly with all of the aspects of being a New York Jew.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, What was it like growing up in rural Massachusetts being a Jewish family? Pretty typical?
1: It it was, uh, A, there was a fair amount of anti-Semitism. B, there was only one synagogue in in our town. So it was kind of a, uh, you know, if you were Orthodox, it wasn't enough. If you were reform, it was too much. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, the typical Jewish experience with the bar mitzvah. And the only thing was when one of my grandmothers moved to our town, which was Greenfield, uh, we had to travel 45 minutes to Springfield to find a kosher butcher for her. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So was food important then? That was my next question.
1: No. No. Um food, uh, if food is important to you if your mother's a good cook. <laughs> my mother, God lover, was a great parent, a terrific accountant, and a lousy cook. Oh, uh, until I was an adult, I did not realize that steak was a good thing because when <laughs> we had steak, it was done on one of those black and white speckled pans. Uh-huh. And it came and it was broiled. And it came out of the broiler with this kind of brown sludge oozing oh, along yeah. the top of it. So the, the the only quote good food in my life at that point was literally traditional Eastern European Jewish food mm. that my grandparents, uh grandmothers would would provide for holidays and such, Mm. but no, eating at home was nothing special.
0: Okay. That's a bummer, man. I was hoping for something really good there, but it's all right.
1: No, I mean, look, there are things that um, I remember as enjoyable because I grew up in New England and every morning Foster's supermarket owned by Bud Foster, who did his own radio commercials, would send a truck to Boston, which in my childhood seemed like the end of the world. In fact, it was 90 miles. But Bud would send a truck to Boston and come back with lobsters and they would steam them for you in in the supermarket so my um, uh, uh, culinarily deprived mother could 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 stop at the supermarket on the way home and we could have steamed lobster, which to this day is one of my favorites. Mm. And as a New Englander, I will tell anyone who boils their lobster, you're making it soggy. Steam it,
0: steam it, yes, steam sir. it. Okay, that's going to be my big takeaway from this. Uh, that's the you... only one we have more to cover. <laughs> I know, I'm just kidding, <laughs> and we're done. That's a wrap, all done. And
1: thanks for stopping by. It's been great. Uh,
0: how did you get on the news path? Was this was this something that you always wanted to do? I always—it's
1: interesting. I always wanted to be in broadcasting hmm. when I was young i uh, there was a prep school in our area mount hermon which later became northfield mount hermon when they integrated uh, uh boys and girls schools and it had a, a an on-campus radio station and my father never knew this but he he was involved with the jewish community on campus there so i'd been to the school with him a few times i asked him if i could go to mount hermon if i could get in But he didn't realize that the reason I wanted to go there was because they had a radio station. It had piqued my interest. Then, um, when I was like 15, I couldn't drive yet, uh, I got a job at a local radio station. WCAT in Orange, Massachusetts, the kitty cat with the thousand-watt meow. And from there, um, then came Watergate. And we all wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein, and suddenly I found myself wanting to be a news guy, which I uh, was able to do when I was going to, to Oklahoma University in Norman. I was lucky enough to get a job at one of the dominant radio stations in Oklahoma at the time, and it kind of went from there. I mean, I got to Kansas and switched over into television, and so... so it kind of happened because I wanted to play um, records and be a disc jockey like Dan Ingram of WABC.
0: Right. But, you know...
1: Got to start something.
0: So, at, at, was there a point, though, doing radio where it was less about music and more about news? Or was it always... Yeah,
1: once once, once I got... Uh, in Oklahoma City, the job I got was as the fill-in news guy that they would hire from uh, the local college. And um, I remember asking Miss America, Tawny Godin, at a press conference if she had ever smoked marijuana, and she said yes. And it made this big national, it was on, like, Johnny Carson or something. And that's when I realized this news thing is kind
0: of cool. Nice. Asking those uh, tough questions.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, look, when when you're 19 or 20, you think you're asking. you
0: know sure sure I had a professor in college from Dallas his start was in radio news and he said that's the foundation really of any good news stories because it's all about sound and less about pictures right. right so yeah I mean and you could argue that now that pictures do play an important role but he said the building blocks of a good news story a good news TV story was your sound and including your interviews
1: yeah, but also remember one other thing. People don't realize this. Continuity and clarity of sound is in some ways the most essential part of a produced piece of television. Because I hate it. I'm watching a news story. And every time they change the picture, the natural sound, with yes. it changes. even though supposedly you're at the same place. When I was doing diners, drive-ins, and dives. We spent 23 hours of sound post-production on every half-hour episode, because what I used to tell my producers was, sound will cheat picture, picture won't cheat sound.
0: Oh man, that's good stuff. I just had this conversation with a reporter last night, because she was in this room, there was a buzz, and every time it went to her voice, her track, right? We're totally mm. geeking out right now. The, the buzz that's in the okay. room would die down, would, would go away. And it was so jarring. And I'm like, it just, it feels so unnatural. It feels gross. Like, we got to fix well, that.
1: When, when you are presenting, look, when, when you make a TV story, if if you're good and honest, the presence of the TV camera and the choice of shots you take distorts the reality. It's then your job to recreate that reality as close to what was there as you technically can. And mm-hmm. it sounds very very important part of that.
0: Yeah, no, I completely. And for agree.
1: everyone in our audience now who knows what a decibel is, we're doing well.
0: <laughs> right? Exactly. So you go to, you get on this path of news, and then it, it creeps over into TV news. Where does that lead you from there? Well,
1: the first place it led me um, as a very young um, careerist was into the specialty of investigative reporting Mm. because I discerned pretty quickly, A, it interested me, but B, it was the way to get noticed Mm. if you did the special stuff. I mean, it's interesting, the morning anchor at a station in Dallas just interviewed me. We worked together in Phoenix on TV 40 years ago. And to this day, I remember the fact that he dubbed me the accountant because I only filed quarterly reports. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I got into the investigative side of it. And increasingly, because it's those pieces that can get resources and airtime, those are the ones you're able to produce right. um, significantly. And over time it occurred to me, I was much better at producing than I was about being mm. on television. Mm -hmm. Um, As a news director at a competing station in Atlanta once told me where I was an investigative reporter, I was thinking about crossing the street and I was meeting with him and he looked at me and he said, David, there are people God meant to be on television and people that he didn't mean to be on television. And unfortunately, in your case, he didn't. Um, But he was right. Um, I have one piece of tape that I look at every few years of me on the air in Phoenix at the age of, I don't know, 24. <laughs> and and he was definitely right. But I also enjoyed the the journalism and the building mm-hmm. of, of the pieces. And it all came together when I was fired at the local station in Atlanta because I didn't like my boss and he didn't like me. And he had the power to do something about liking me more than I had the power to do something about <laughs> not, not liking him. <laughs> And he can me one day and looking, you know, randomly for work, I figured, what the hell? I walked down the street and and stopped in at the NBC News Bureau in Atlanta
0: hmm.
1: without realizing that I did that like 24 hours after one of their producers went on sabbatical to write a book. So as I'm walking out, having dropped off a tape, they're running after me going, no, no, the bureau chief wants to talk to you. You know, I'm in jeans and I got a beard. Um, But I I was picked up to freelance as a producer in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. which eventually, after another stop in television, local television, uh, resulted in me being picked up to be a producer in the Chicago Bureau. And from there, they they sent me overseas.
0: Oh, where? Overseas?
1: I was uh, initially sent to London, Mm -hmm. um, which I didn't particularly love for a number of reasons, one of which is... It's kind of hard um, to be accepted uh, by Brits as as a friend or human being. But but more to the point, London was a big bureau. We had, I don't know, six or seven traveling producers. And when the good stories came in, you know, who's next? And they all occurred a plane stop away, either in Western Europe or Africa or the Middle East, which all of us who were in, in Europe covered. Um... So I lobbied to get myself transferred to Frankfurt, where a good friend of mine was the bureau chief and where the bureau was much smaller Mm. and where we were closer to the news. Um, And that turned out to be a, a great turn of events until it became clear that communism was about to fall apart. And I was asked to open a bureau in Budapest. Which was the westernmost and thus most accessible of the countries on that side of the metaphorical Iron Curtain. Right. So I moved to Budapest, and um, from there, as as what we expected started to happen, uh, the the revolution in mm-hmm. Romania being the most extreme example, I pretty much led NBC's coverage of most of these stories and ended up uh, at the Berlin Wall the night it opened.
0: I know, was, I read that. That's crazy. It was a remarkable
1: experience. It was great. It was wonderful. See, I had been working a lot in East Berlin over the years, and I always described East Berlin as the same as West Berlin, only the movie turned to black and white. Mm. when When you moved through Checkpoint Charlie, uh, it was like in the movies. I mean, they were they were under your car with with a mirror, and they were opening yeah. the trunk, um, and and then you'd cross over to the other side, and it was just it was as if you'd gone back many many years in time. Hmm. Uh, and when I got to walk through checkpoint Charlie with no border guard stopping me, uh, the night the wall opened, it was it was unbelievable. It was just incredible. Um, and we we did a lot of work on, on that night and in following weeks and months, uh, watching this remarkable thing unfold. Now, the downside, and I would never wish Berliners to be locked behind a wall, but in the news business, the downside to opening the wall was that it revealed um, an ugly reality. Yeah which nobody thought of at the time it happened, which was America's news coverage is entirely American based. And we had been covering Europe as an American story that basically boiled down to will a nuclear war start here? Once uh, communism had had its day and the wall opened and we were no longer massed in the Fold of gap in Germany to be overrun by Soviet troops, but slow them down, which is really what troops there would have done. News executives looked up at each other and said, Well, this is boring. So, all of these great plans to put in extensive new bureaus and right. in Berlin, it all got dialed back. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, it, it's a shame we don't have more. Um, national interest in things that happen elsewhere. Yeah. Nuclear uh, war there. So was much of the journalism.
0: I do find it incredible. Journalists, specifically, we—not me, but others out there—get to experience these moments in history and in time. And not only do we capture it, but we're the connection for the viewers. So mm-hmm. we're experiencing it along with everyone else, but we're really this, I don't know, I mean, a conduit of uh, you know, all of this information, taking it in and then pushing it back out for others to see.
1: And it can be extremely difficult, because let's face it, when you're working internationally, you are often parachuting into places you have never been before, right. about which you know very little, mm-hmm. and it's incumbent upon you to, to learn, to ask, to figure it. I remember one of, one of my first trips to the Middle East. I was in Cairo. Something was going down in Cairo. I don't know what it was. I'd been overseas about 10 seconds and it was a big enough deal that a vice president from New York had flown in to run the whole thing. Yeah. And I'm in the bureau and he walks past me. He points at me, he says, Paige, he says, go to the Sudan. No, I'm sorry. He says, go to Khartoum. I say, absolutely, Joe. And then I turned to one of the locals and I say, "Where's cartoon?" <laughs> he says, "It's in the Sudan." I say, "Where's the Sudan?" <laughs> he says, "It's the next country south," and off I went. Um, so there was a tremendous need to learn and learn quickly. Yeah. Um, much of which. Was done, frankly, by interrogating the hell out of experienced print reporters who lived in those places. I know. Uh, some of it was done by talking to Western diplomats or whatever. I remember we were in um, Libya for something involving Gaddafi, and obviously you can't drink in Libya. Um, so I went over to. We did not have an embassy there. We had no diplomatic relations with Libya. So I guess it was. I want to say the Swiss ambassador might've been Belgian who represented American interests there. And I went over to see him to get a background briefing and everything was bugged in Tripoli. You knew that including his house. So when you sat down, what he says to you is, um, would you like some tea? And I say, of course, he says, do you want tea from Ceylon or tea from Scotland? And you say tea from Scotland. And he pours you a big glass of scotch oh
0: yeah nice way to
1: go yes thank you mr ambassador
0: yes and that's that's awesome you know the thing about journalism though is if you don't know ask right if you don't
1: wow well, but the, see that's the key people are afraid, afraid to, to ask. ask they're afraid to look stupid
0: what i, I... i'm not <laughs> just ask
1: i have no idea what this is or what it means i learned that the hard way i was working at a tv station in wichita kansas and i came back from a city council meeting and i wrote up some story about how they voted on section 8 housing and my news director who knew i didn't have a clue <laughs> walked over to me and said what's section 8 housing i said uh, i actually don't know he said well i guess your viewers don't either then do they mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah you gotta ask you, yeah. in fact i i teach or taught i don't do it anymore. But when I would when you're a producer and you're interviewing someone, as you well know, your questions are not going to be on camera. Right. All you're going. It's different when the reporter does the interview. But if you're a producer, what you're trying to do is elicit, complete answers. And I just cringe when I hear a producer say, could you say it this way? No, don't do that. What I would do when I asked a question was sound the stupidest I could possibly sound mm-hmm. and ramble on in incomplete sentences like the thing you, the what, how, what, how's that work? And they would take pity on me and give me great answers.
0: Right. So, yeah.
1: no, I'm not afraid to look stupid. I do it naturally all the time.
0: <laughs> same here, same here. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's just it. And it's, it's okay. I had an, an interview once, you know, I asked him a question, he answered, and then I moved on, and he said, Do you even know what that is? Do you even know what that no, is? Do I don't, I don't is?
1: have a clue.
0: And I said, you know what? You're right. Will you please explain that to me? And I got a fantastic interview after it. But yeah, I, if you don't know, ask. It's okay. Well,
1: you, you know, there, there's a phrase that's being bandied about on television and in the newspapers repeatedly these days that requires a half-sentence explanation. Critical race mm-hmm. theory. Nobody explains it. They just say it. Right. And 99... Not 99... More than half of the audience has no idea what you're talking I
0: about. I had to look it up. I didn't know. When I, yeah. the, the first story we aired about it, I was like, what is critical race theory? I have no idea what that means. Right. Right. Yeah. Amen. All right. Good stuff. We, I feel like we could talk about news a lot, but I really want to get into food because that's my, that's my second love right after news. Uh, you, you Well, we
1: can talk about that a lot too.
0: Okay. Uh, you're overseas. You come back eventually. They let, we let you back in. Yes. Okay. That's good to know. Um, I
1: was allowed.
0: You were allowed, uh, and then you start working for NBC. Did that come first?
1: I, I continued working for NBC. Only now I was becoming a show producer. Gotcha. They they brought me back to be the senior producer of a female-oriented daily talk show, for which I was in many ways unqualified. I didn't have kids. I wasn't female, but in typical, you know. Times may or may not have changed much of the infrastructure of that show was people who had no experience with with the topics. But anyway, I was senior producer of a show called A Closer Look with Faith Daniels. And um, from that, uh, a partner and I pitched the brass on doing a weekend edition of the Today Show. Mm -hmm. And they gave us that. Um, We put that on the air, did that for a while um astonishingly i had my differences with some of the people there's a theme here some of the people in management i left uh freelance for a while didn't make any money it was before the internet so looking stuff up was virtually impossible uh got a job at abc had a drop down in prestige back down to Mm -hmm. producer uh, for Brian Ross, who was the chief investigative correspondent. And from there I became the senior investigative producer in 2020. And then I was actually, this has never happened to me before or since I was internally recruited by good morning America to jump ship and go be a senior producer on that show, which I did. Um, it was a terrific position. It was called line producer. There were three of us, and every third week, the show, subject to the executive producer's sign off, was yours. Uh, the downside was, since you did the control room as well as the editorial prep, mm. I would average in the week I did the show about 12 hours sleep total. Ugh. And that got old. And sure. then I also started to have some concerns about the direction in which news was going. Full stop, no. The major news outlets do not engage in fake news. That's complete BS. But I was distressed by the degree to which certain um, entertainment elements were becoming more important. And the day I was told that there had been the first winner on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And I was going to have that person in my first half hour the next morning. That's when I knew it was probably time to get nice. ready to leave.
0: hey, so. at least at least you saw it, at least you realized it. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't, I think. I'm curious, is there a lot of competition within one network between shows? Yes, okay.
1: Um, it was poaching me mm-hmm. from twenty twenty to GMA. Was a cause of great internal consternation. Hmm. Uh, It's not supposed to be done. Not, not, I mean, if I were a producer, that's fine, but I was a senior guy. And um, the producer of 2020 was not particularly thrilled by that turn of events. Sure. But you know what? They replaced me and nothing changed.
0: Right? I say that all the time. We will move on. We will survive. We will survive. Um, I do find that interesting you said that there was a segment on a morning show that shall rename nameless Uh, it was a segment about climate change and a book that was written it was a fascinating segment they gave it maybe two minutes two and a half minutes an actor movie actor was on right after that which was spent like six minutes on this interview talking about you know their grilled cheese sandwich that they love to eat it it, I'm just like are you kidding me right now it's it's obvious
1: understand that those shows have become the money generators for the networks. So the days of putting a show on the air without regard to the ratings, I mean, that was the 70s at best or the 60s. It started to change in the 70s. So on the one hand, I understand that you've got a program for eyeballs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when I was doing GMA, a couple of Okay. As as whoops. Did you go. lose? Me? We lost. Okay. We
0: lost you for. We lost you for just like five okay, seconds. I'm back. so okay. Let me.
1: Uh, I'll, I'll give you a clean in. I remember when I was doing GMA, a a ball player that Charlie Gibson was a big fan of uh, was announced. It was announced that he was uh, elected to the Hall of Fame. So Charlie and I got all excited and booked a segment in the 7.30 half hour the next morning with this ball player and the other guy who was also elected, who insisted come with him. And we ran it, and the EP let us, not because I wanted to, but because Charlie wanted to. And she gleefully announced to me the next morning that it was the lowest rated 7.30 half hour we'd had all year. That stuff matters, you know. Yeah. The other problem is, um, I especially had this on GMA, a lot of decision-making in television, as, as you well know, it is built around things like pace, Mm-hmm. And the number of interviews that you can get into a half hour. When I was at GMA, the executive producer, obviously operating on um, advice from consultants, was jamming the first half hour with interview after interview to get as many as possible. But neither talent wanted to do less than six minutes on anybody. So I spent the first half hour of every show in every talent here so going rap, rap, rap <laughs> to the point at which... Diane Sawyer, who was a lovely individual, finally um, looked up during the break and said to me quietly in my ear, David, one would be enough.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. I get that. I get rap, rap, rap quite a bit. Uh, Did you get burned out? Is that what I'm feeling? Yes. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I got burned out. The hours were long. Mm -hmm. The... um, which is one of the, by the way, that's one of the reasons I left Europe. There comes a point, I, I used to get up every morning, and this is healthy, and look in the mirror and say to myself, CBS is going to screw me today. I I existed in fear of losing. Yeah. Toward the end of my time overseas, I felt that burn, that, that urgency, that, that need to get up. And get on with it every day and win. I felt it starting to become a burden. Pardon me as I let my dog out. There you go, That's Buffy. Okay. Um, and you shouldn't do something that you're not a hundred and ten percent out. That's one of the reasons that I was open to coming back to the states. By the end of my time at GMA, yeah, I was fried. Mm-hmm. I was completely fried.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you know, you you can't live sleep deprived for that long.
0: So, did you have a plan? What was going to be next for uh, you? No plan. Well, I,
1: I thought I had a plan. Mm-hmm. I, I went to the grownups there and said, I don't want to do GMA anymore. And they said, OK, you're fired. And I said, no, I have a contract and you know I'll work it out. And they found a make work job for me. Uh, and then I went looking for work and got headhunted by a home shopping channel in Minnesota and was seduced by the idea of being a senior vice president at a publicly traded corporation got out there and realized this was the worst decision I had ever made in my uh, life lasted about, I don't know, two years. And then took a, a risk and opened a production company and starved for a while. Um, and, and luckily it was with that production company that I eventually got diners, but it was a little rocky for a while.
0: Right. Right. So, you have this production company. I guess what I'm trying to get at was when did you realize I I really want to do something food related? I I wanted I wanted have that's a show that
1: No, I was I was trying I was trying not to starve. Um I Al Roker had worked for me on the Weekend Today show before mm-hmm. he was on the show. He also in parallel with his NBC career had opened a production company. Right. that was doing what I called him up one day and said, I can't sell anything. You got any work? And he said, yeah, I'm doing stuff for the Food Network. You want to do something? I said, sure. So first I started doing segments for a show he had called Roker on the Road, producing them. And then he started subcontracting hours to me, including an hour on the history of diners. Now, I wasn't going to make um, a major living or, or establish a production company um, being the contractor for um subleased product so quite amicably uh with great thanks to al for having given me the work Uh i tried to connect with the food network on my own and the executive who i would call uh who i had met while working there for al uh was nice lovely uh, took my calls and said no And then said, no, and then said, no, this went on and on and on. I kept pitching one day. I'm on the phone pitching her. It's like a late in the afternoon on a Thursday or a Friday. And in frustration, she says, don't you have anything else on diners? And I said, oh yeah, I'm developing this show called diners, drive-ins and dives. I mumbled a little bit about it. And she said, you know, that sounds interesting. We have a development meeting on Tuesday. Could you get me a write up on Monday? And I said, great. And I hung up the phone. And this was good because she wanted to see something from me. It was bad because I had just invented the title <laughs> on the spot. I had a development called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives.
0: I was going to ask. And
1: I spent the weekend um, calling around the country, talking to people. Because uh, back then, you actually you used your phone to talk to people. It's incredible. It was a communication device. Um, and I wrote up a, a show pitch for a one-hour special and delivered it on Monday, and shortly thereafter, they picked up the special, which eventually, through other bizarre circumstances, turned into the series.
0: That's fantastic, and I know you have an impressive resume, but I guess I'm just baffled by this idea that you're calling up the Food Network and just like, hey, Mm -hmm. I got this show, and Mm -hmm. she's like, no, and then you call them back, and you call them back, and they're like, oh, it's David again, it's David again with Mm -hmm. this idea. Um, Well,
1: the the little secret that is hard to remember when you're pitching
0: mm-hmm.
1: is that they need good shows. Now, they, because most production at Networks is not done in-house, what they do all day is take pitches, hoping desperately that one of them is worth a damn. Right. So when you're on this side of the desk calling, it seems like they have no interest in anything. But on their side of the desk, what they're saying is, please bring me something good.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, un- understand, I have had one hit show, and I have pitched, and I've done a few other shows. I must have pitched 500 shows after over the years. I mean, you've got to just keep going.
0: Yeah, yeah. I say that to myself a lot when I'm asking people to, to talk to me. they're like no But
1: you know if you don't ask you can't get hurt by asking doing the chapter on bagels and lox in my book I thought to myself you know who I'd like to hear from I'd like to hear what Mel Brooks has to say about bagels and lox so I wrote his office and they called me back and said yeah Mel would like to do it so I interviewed Mel Brooks about bagels and lox I mean you can't you can't be afraid to ask
0: you don't know unless you ask yeah, people say yes. Yeah, I know. Hey, you say you said yes.
1: I'm delighted to be on your show.
0: Yay! That's what I like to hear. So you said you had one hit show. Is that Diners, mm-hmm. Drive-ins, and Dives? Yes. I mean, I want. I say, I think hit is a little bit of an understatement.
1: I will immodestly say that show has. Um, has earned a significant place in the history yeah. of television.
0: Yes, I, a thousand percent. It highlighted, it highlighted those little spots in our community that only we love, right? These little, th- these little spots that people come to town. If you're a true foodie, you ask a local where you go eat.
1: Yeah, and the shame of it is, you shouldn't have to be a foodie to intrinsically aim toward those sorts of places. True. Side, side trip here the pandemic has kicked independent restaurants in the butt Mm -hmm. so and many of them have gone out of business i implore people when you're on your way to applebee's take a left turn and go to a locally owned mom and pop please i i was very pleased that we were able to give um a forum if you will to individual restaurants some of which told us after the fact that they were on the verge of bankruptcy when we called so um there was one place in lexington kentucky a barbecue joint my, my daughter um through her high school years was a competitive equestrian so we would go to lexington kentucky a lot for horse shows and it almost got embarrassing going in there because we literally they were like a week from bankruptcy. And then we gave them this publicity and they did well, and Mm. they wouldn't let me pay. Mm. Everything they had, it it actually got to the point where I I, I couldn't go in there that much because I felt like I was stealing their
0: food. Right.
1: But yes, I was very proud that we gave a forum to mom and pop restaurants. I, I am not happy that the shorthand description of the food that we were talking about too often placed it as unhealthy or outrageous when in fact it wasn't. I, I really, the famed food writer, Michael Pollan, really, really annoyed me. Let's put it that way. I had an expression that had more words when he wrote in the New York times about our show as glorifying unhealthy food and I wrote him back and I said you know take a close look at the show this is the kind of food we do it's real food not a lot of it is what you would consider junk food Um, we give the complete recipe we show every step of making the food how do you shorthand us as some sort of crappy food porn Mm -hmm. mr. pollen um, whom who fell a long way, in my estimation, from his perch as a god of food writing, um, simply said, well, people know what I mean. And, and he never corrected. But I, I really disliked that take on the show. Um, you know, we did whole belly clams. We did meatloaf. We we, we did paella. We did all sorts of real food. Yeah. And it, it ticked me off to see it reduced to some kind of food porn junk food
0: yeah well i hate to break it to that food critic but that's the kind of food that people want to watch being made yes
1: yeah and look so much of it is um television presentation yeah you have to make the food attractive you have to make it look tasty you have to make it sound tasty right that's why we spent so much time in audio post making sure you could hear the sizzles and Mm. the scrapes and the flips, because the one thing you don't have on TV yet is aroma.
0: Right. (laughs) Let's work on that, please. I'll Um, I'll go down there. How how does one produce a show of diners, uh, diners, drive-ins, and dives? I'm assuming you have to, if you're gonna pick a city, right? you, You wanna hit a few spots in that city to make the most of your time?
1: You also, your favorite hello the dog's back she came in
0: what's um, the dog's name
1: oh uh, the little she's a little one she's buffy, she's hi, buffy. A pug. hi buffy hi she's buffy she's an attack puggle. actually we also have a <laughs> black lab named lady um did you ever read william goldman's book on screenwriting adventures in the screen trade it's it's the best thing on hollywood ever written and he explains the the, the way creative decisions are made in movie making which is everything is controlled by budget. Mm -hmm. If you want the biggest car crash in the world, you have to have a budget to to run three Rolls Royces together. If not, you show a close-up of one car coming from the left and a close-up of the other car coming from the right, and then you show the wreckage. Okay, somewhere in the middle of there, the budget determines what you're going to do. One of the most important elements of diners was we would shoot four locations at a time and then we would checkerboard them because remember there were three locations in each show. Okay. So, in a perfect world, you want to get as many different locations as possible. So the best place to go is a place near a state line where you can do like a couple in Illinois and a couple in Indiana, it increases your ability mm-hmm. to, to checkerboard so one of the decisions that had to be made was where are we going okay what are the places that offer us the most bang for the buck then let's look into those places and find out what the food scene is there talk to food writers talk to the writer for the newspaper talk to the writer for the local magazine talk to the writer for the regional magazine get their suggestions okay um viewer suggestions were not often helpful because what's your favorite restaurant growing up may not really be a good restaurant anyway um so we would go with professional guidance Mm -hmm. and then we would talk to the candidate restaurants in great detail about what they did and how they did it and and how homemade it was um i would not do and i did the first 11 seasons i don't know what they do now but we would not go to a place, a pancake joint that didn't make its own pancake batter.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: Um, you know, there's a there's a place where I live that is renowned for its pancakes. I thought about including them. I called them up. They it comes out of a box. That that's not cooking. Okay. Um, so we would interview them extensively. The researchers would bring me a list of candidates that they had whittled down. I would send them back for more questions and eventually, um, we got so good at it that our hit rate was uh, 95%, 5% of the time when the crew and guy arrived on scene, it was unfortunately the case that the place didn't measure up. Gotcha. Uh, at which time I would tell them just to politely leave. Now, the network thought I was nuts because I ate that. That was not the budget did not have any contingency for walking out. But I thought that the credibility of the show and mm-hmm. telling the truth
0: mm-hmm.
1: were um, inviolate and necessary. Yeah. So that's what we did.
0: Well, good on you. You have to. Right. You have to. Um, well,
1: no, but see, that raises a whole question about food journalism. Uh, I insisted that every fact be true to the best of our knowledge. hmm. And I held the fact-checking process to the same standards I used when I was in charge of investigations at in 2020. That is not always the case in in that world. But hey,
0: good thing you had that stint at 2020.
1: <laughs> oh, I was a I did a lot of investigative work when Oh,
0: I, I know, I know, absolutely. I I I love that though. Yes, and. I love the fact as a food person watching that show that you did have this small spot and there was, you know, a 60-year-old man who was like, I make everything. I make everything from scratch. And I'm here all the time.
1: (laughs) And look, part of the casting process, part of the selection process for the show was what kind of character is the owner or chef? There were several good restaurants that just couldn't be booked because the chef or owner.
0: Yeah, chefs are weird.
1: Interesting TV. And it's bizarre because it's not necessarily the people you'd expect. Yeah. But you know, uh, the, the one thing, if you run a mom and pop, if you make the slightest margin, which is what restaurants make, after working 18 hours a day, which is what restaurants require, it's gotta be because you care. Mm-hmm. They call it the hospitality industry and right. the people who are good at it really want to please other people. Mm-hmm. And that passion tends to come through on camera.
0: Yeah, 1,000%. Any memorable moments that stick out to you? I know there's probably a ton.
1: Uh, I really, no, I, I didn't go on the road after the first season. Okay, but mm-hmm. I was on the road in the first season and was really struck by two places one and i wish i remember the woman's name she had a small shack by the side of the highway in texas serving goat burgers goat or lamb lamb burgers pardon me
0: okay
1: from her own lamb i mean she right. she she was vertically integrated and she was just such an incredible character i loved her and um Louis miller's barbecue in taylor texas which has been there i don't know at this point 70 or 80 years and what at one time was a girl's basketball gymnasium so it's two stories tall with you know windows on the second floor that you can hardly i mean if you could get up there you couldn't see through them they're they're just covered with decades of, of soot and smoke uh, at the time, Louis' son, Bobby, ran the place. Bobby has since passed on, and, and his son, Wayne, runs the place. Uh-huh. But Bobby was just phenomenal. A, it's the best barbecue I've ever had. B, Bobby was dry and hilarious. Uh-huh. Um, guy asked him at 3 in the morning as he was starting the fire, he said, what do you use? And Bobby said, wood. <laughs> <laughs> and, and And it went it went from there. And this guy put nothing on his brisket but salt and pepper.
0: Mm.
1: put it into this old offset smoker and knew, just knew at various points while we we're interviewing him, he would open the smoker and take this piece of meat and put it over there on a different and would you say? He just, he was incredible. And this food, the food he served there was, and I presume they still serve today because Wayne has continued the tradition. That's
0: that's amazing. It was
1: unbelievable. Hmm. And I learned something interesting. Their sausage, traditionally, I didn't know this, uh, Central Texas sausage was made with bull meat. Um, Allegedly because it gave a better chew, but I think originally because what else are you going to do with an old bull? Oh my
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's interesting okay let's talk about the book when did please where did this where did this idea pop into your head i'm gonna write a book
1: well i said it with just that accent Well, yeah uh first of all tv producers ask your producer in the booth right now tv producers all think they have a book in them because (laughs) writing for tv as you will know isn't like writing a narrative. No. It's using the proper words to, as invisibly as possible, move people from an event unfolding in front of them mm-hmm. to another event unfolding in front of them. You cannot, as a TV producer, sit down at the keyboard and write. It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> right. Then Oedipus killed his father. Uh, you can't do it. Yeah. So for years, like most producers, I kept thinking to myself, I got a book in me. Now, secondly. I have changed careers every few years. Uh, most of it was in television, but, you know, I was an investigative guy. I was a foreign guy. I was a morning show guy. I was a talk show guy. Then now I'm a food guy. Um, so I was feeling restless and feeling like it was time to, to do something new. And I finally looked up and said, you know what? Um, I'm going to write that damn book. Yeah. So I did.
0: Food Americana is the title. Yes. Um, yes. And it's, I guess... Walk me through the research a little bit. I mean, the whole, the whole point of this was what?
1: Um, well, w- what was good was that I did a fair amount of research on the general topic before the right. theme appeared to me. The theme is, the premise is, that Americans have created a cuisine of our own mm-hmm. out of the cuisines of other countries and cultures. Um, now it, it, on the one hand, it seems obvious, but I don't think it is. I I think if you thought about it, as I did, you would acknowledge that sushi is now an American food. Mm -hmm. It's not something that would come to mind when you go out for grab and go sushi every three days at lunch. Um, everything that is in our rotation, uh, the, the, the small menu that is, American basics, came from someplace else. And that which didn't, like lobster, which was indigenous, the kind of lobster we eat to to the North American continent, we still got from another culture, that of the Native Americans, who helped save the early settlers' lives by teaching them what and how to eat. In the case of lobster, it included wrapping it in seaweed and throwing it into a pit on top of the coals which, gosh, that sounds a lot like the traditional New England clam bake, doesn't it?
0: Yep, sure does.
1: Um, It's, and what I find fascinating is, you know, on the one hand, these are American favorites. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. foodies, especially foodies who are in it more to be cool than to enjoy their food. Those are two different kinds of foodies. The ones with their noses up in the air who are in great danger when it rains will often say, well, that's not authentic. Well, authentic what? (laughs) It's authentic Chinese-American. It's authentic Mexican-American. These are separate cuisines that are parts of a cuisine that we have developed that represents America. And by the way, you know, food evolves. When you talk about authentic to what, um, one of the most popular dishes in China right now, among the young and hip, is scrambled eggs and tomatoes. Do you want that in your Chinese restaurant yeah. to make it more?
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, I also love the fact that we do have this American cuisine because it comes from so many different people that have moved here, right? And we're learning from mm-hmm. them. And sure, mm-hmm. we are taking spaghetti and meatballs, for instance, which is not an Italian. It's not Italian. It's American.
1: But, but, but it was a, pardon me for interrupting. No, you're fine. The story of spaghetti and meatballs is a wonderful story because what you had was dirt poor immigrants Mm -hmm. coming here from Southern Italy who almost never got to eat meat because they were dirt poor. Exactly. And when they came to America, they found out that even if you're poor, you can afford meat. Mm -hmm. And that's why things like Sunday sauce, the, the tomato sauce filled with pork and veal yes. and, and sometimes beef those things are a wonderful immigrant triumph mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. of people who came here and found out that they could have the better life they were looking for um i, I think that's wonderful and no you're not going to find spaghetti and meatballs in italy but that's okay right uh, right you know it's it, it is a food of its own and by the way italian american cuisine kicks butt
0: major butt Major Major butt. Major, major (laughs) butt. Is there any food, is there any food that you, when you think about American cuisine, what comes to your mind after writing this book?
1: Lobster rolls and barbecue.
0: Yeah, yes. Lobster
1: rolls because uh, it's it's a food you can only get in North America, that, that particular kind of lobster. Barbecue, because it is so ingrained in the development of our country. Um, George Washington threw a barbecue for, I believe, the the cornerstone laying of one of the major buildings in Washington, maybe in the Capitol, And also because, and there's a lot of bad in with the good here, African Americans, um, who at this moment may be... um, our treatment of them is getting a second look by a lot of Americans they've been kind of whitewashed out of the barbecue story uh, the celebrity pitmasters today are almost all white competition barbecue is almost all white uh, when I was at Memphis in May I saw a lot of white restaurant owners and many of them had black pit masters but from its very beginning barbecue developed here now it developed from techniques and flavors that had been brought from West Africa, then it as it expanded around the country, it it, it evolved into a variety of different kinds of barbecue, and, and to me, it's it's really a primal American food.
0: Yeah, for sure. Anything in writing the book that surprised you in your research?
1: Yeah. Um, my people. Jews in Europe did not eat bagels and lox
0: because
1: there was no lox lox existed only because the transcontinental railroad was built that allowed the shipment of salmon from the northwest Mm. to New York Mm. but there was no refrigeration so the salmon had to be packed in salt which brined it which turned it into lox now, New York Jews had a history of eating smoked fish. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't smoked, it was brined, but nonetheless, it, it made perfect sense if you could afford it because it was not the cheapest available option that was herring. But if you could slap it on a bagel, a little cream cheese, you know, mm. you had something nice there. Mm-mm. It was good.
0: Do you cook, David Page?
1: Oh, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm a, an eager amateur cook, and I do a good job, but I don't have the it that you need to be a chef. I, I don't feel it. I mean, if I'm going to have people over for a steak, I'll probably cook an extra so I can cut into it and make sure it's it's ready. Nice. I, I'm not one of those chefs that I've interviewed over the years, like like um, Bobby Miller, who out of nowhere turns around and does something to the food because he feels it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now, yeah. I love
1: to cook. I I'm I'm pretty good, mm-hmm. but I'm no chef. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. I love to cook, but yeah, I don't I would never want to like even take go that go that path. I just feel like it's something that I would I love so much now. I would hate for it to be I would hate to be a slave to it, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, and you know, cook the the good thing about cooking is you can do whatever you want. It's <laughs> not like baking, which is chemistry. Baking yeah. if you're a quarter teaspoon off, it all goes down the drain. Food you get to be Creative, mm-hmm. and, and and I like that. Uh, I I I make a hell of a roast chicken. Yeah. I make the best. I may Oh, I have a secret. I cook it at 500. Do you? I preheat the oven to 500.
0: Wait, hold, hold on. Salt,
1: pepper, glue cumin.
0: Hold on, hold on. You paused. Go back. Preheat the oven to 500.
1: Okay. I preheat the oven to 500. I, I put my chicken in a pot not a pan so i have some depth okay salt pepper garlic surrounded by vegetables Uh then i pour in a huge amount of stock so that the chicken doesn't dry out it continues to absorb the liquid then i put it in a 500 and it's so hot A, it cooks quickly but b you get a real nice skin Mm. and that's that's nice. I, I love I a good I also make roast the trigger. best I also make the best Jewish Italian red sauce in New Jersey.
0: Jewish Italian red sauce.
1: Well, I'm a Jew and I am making Italian red sauce. Okay, so help me here. Go.
0: What does that what does that look like?
1: Oh it's a it's a basic. It's it's um you put onions and garlic in the bottom of your pan with some oil, you get it going. Then you squeeze out the insides of six links of hot Italian sausage. Mm-hmm. Bought at the butcher, Please. not the supermarket. Please. You get them going, then you throw in four or five pork ribs. You get them browned. Then in comes your crushed tomatoes, oregano, salt and pepper. Heat goes way down, and you leave it there for a long time. Oh, don't forget the red pepper either. Now. Truth be told, I learned it from a dear Italian friend who grew up in Brooklyn. But
0: And then what happens to the pork ribs? You take all the meat off and throw that in?
1: Oh, the meat just, it it, it just comes off the bone in the sauce. It's mm.
0: fantastic. Okay. You
1: gotta trust me on this.
0: I do. I do. Very much so. This is going to be my next Sunday project. I but but
1: understand, this is a dish that requires minimal actual chefy skill
0: that's my favorite kind a of dish. Good
1: stuff that you just put in and it stays for a while
0: <laughs> that is my favorite kind of dish it's so funny when people are like man that looks so good is is it hard i'm like no you throw a bunch of crap in a pot and just cook it
1: oh but the best the single best company dish ever yeah is be tenderloin because oh, yeah salt and pepper 500 degree oven 40 minutes max out it comes and you're like some kind of chef it's (laughs) and what's interesting about it is it's so much better than filet mignon which is cut from that same cut yeah i assume that there's something about having the whole log in there that the juices get to move back and forth but yeah that's that's the easy peasy company dish
0: okay good stuff good tips everybody take notes um i do want to wrap up and get to the final three but where can people find food americana
1: well, uh, any place you buy a book, mm-hmm. uh, all the online sites, Amazon.com, Barnes Walmart.com, Target.com. My first choice uh, is Amazon because they're the ones who collect the metrics that um, help ah. you rank your book and get it promoted. Yeah. But And independent bookstores as well. Yeah. Um, it's also for sale all over the world in in various uh, online forums.
0: Yay, well, congratulations.
1: Thank you very much. Oh, oh, they just announced the 2021 International Book Awards and we didn't win, but we were named a finalist in the history category against some real serious stuff, like did the war end the world? I mean, (laughs) I I was stunned, so yes. That's amazing. It was, pre- it's pretty cool.
0: Congratulations. Well, um, I'm super excited to read Food Americana because I'm a food nerd and I could just, I'm I'm super excited to dive in. Um, let's get to the final three, which I love the okay. fact you said, I'm gonna need 15 seconds extra for this first <laughs> question. And I was like, wow. oh honey, you can just talk. Um,
1: yeah, well, uh, once a producer, always a producer.
0: Yeah. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Before we get to the final three, I mm-hmm. I anchor the news. At five and uh-huh. six, I have a producer who does who writes the show for me, and then she's in my ear.
1: Mm-hmm. What's
0: the biggest pet peeve of of yours about anchors?
1: Rap, damn it!
0: <laughs> Stop
1: talking before the computer takes us away. <laughs> I know
0: that's so true. That's so true. That's okay. So basically, it's a chatty anchor.
1: Well, it's an anchor that doesn't listen.
0: Listen.
1: (laughs) On the other hand, let's be fair. Uh, Too many producers spend too much time in the anchor's ear. mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, let him or her do their job unless you need to say something. People out there don't realize you're wearing an IFB uh, Mm -hmm. in your ear. Mm -hmm. And someone in the booth starts talking while you're, for example, if you're listening to someone's answer and the producer starts talking to you, you can't hear the answer. How are you gonna do a real follow-up? Thank you. It's so, hey guys in the booth, go easy on
0: huh? <laughs> Zip it, pipe down. Yeah. I will say this, when my producer says 20 and then she gives me a rap, I'm out of there. I, I'm, I'm known for getting that show on on time, exact, where they come back and they say, okay, good job, show's exact, and I'm like, and you're welcome. Thank you.
1: Remember, Laura, do you know Laura Spencer from GMA? Yeah. Okay, we, uh, Lara, not Laura. We started using her on the show when she was still her, her primary job. She was a reporter at WABC. Right, yeah. Year. And I said to her the first time we were going to have her live, I said, What kind of um, warning do you want? She said, Simply say 15. And she was ungodly. You said 15 and she was out in 15. I yes. mean, it was, she had a clock in her head.
0: Yeah. Love those. Yeah. Love those. Yeah, that's that's talent to me. For sure. Okay. David Page, best advice you've ever been given.
1: Okay. Here's the extra 15 second story. Romanian revolution. We get out of our car in front of a hotel in Timisoara, Romania. Um, Suddenly there are bursts of AK 47 fire. I had not done a lot of bang bang at that point. George Lewis, my correspondent had been in Vietnam. We're both instantly on the ground I look over at George, I say, now what do we do? He yeah. pulls a, fl- a bottle of scotch out of his backpack and says, we do this. Which I translated into, don't, keep, don't get too anxious about anything, just do your job.
0: No, he didn't.
1: Yes, he did.
0: We do this.
1: We do this.
0: That's when someone, uh, an, old, an old co-anchor told me that's what they used to call getting professional.
1: Oh, damn straight. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man, that's good. And, and the lesson there is, say it again.
1: Don't get too anxious about anything, just do your job.
0: Just do your job, all right. What's your happy place?
1: By the pool in Puerto Vallarta with a plate of ceviche.
0: Oh, yes. Now we're talking. I damn think, straight. Yeah, damn straight on that one. Okay, speaking of food, what do you crave these days in all things food and drink?
1: Okay, depends on the day. It's either bagel, lox, and cream cheese or caviar and blinis.
0: Oh, nice. Do you do bubbles with the caviar?
1: Of course. Okay. Well, actually, no. I learned to eat – I will, but I learned to, to enjoy caviar on many trips to Moscow, so I tend to do it with shots of vodka.
0: Oh, okay. Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. just – um, uh, someone once told me also with, with caviar and, and champagne, the the dumbest, most decadent food that you could possibly enjoy. And that was his final meal because he just said, it's just so stupid. Oh, it is. Because it's just so decadent.
1: Although I will tell you, we were stuck in Moscow for a long time, waiting for an interview with some big wig. I don't remember who. And it was back in the old days and there was, no variety of food the hotel would uh, give you this big menu and you'd point and they'd say don't have it And you'd point and say don't have it then you'd say what do you have they say well it's a big menu so we figured out pretty much the only thing you could count on was caviar and blinis and we were there so long i actually got sick of caviar yeah yeah
0: i bet but but you like that it now. Would
1: happen. okay oh, nothing better
0: nothing better um david page you've been so fun i if i'm ever on the jersey shore i want to go Jeez. have i want to have a lobster roll with you and i want to hear more stories from your news days
1: you are welcome anytime
0: okay Woo-hoo. uh and if you are uh, listening to this podcast please subscribe rate and review you can watch it on youtube just look up off script with trish Gloss, and you can listen it listen to it wherever you like to listen to your podcast one more time david page former news producer, but also author of Food Americana, go grab it and learn all of the things about what makes this the food in this country so fun.
1: You've been terrific, Trish, thank you.
0: Oh, thank you, David.